Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Uh, today on Everyday Theology, I get the really esteemed pleasure to talk to someone who I've looked up to in terms of writing and thinking about the church for quite some time. Uh, we've got with us Jonathan Merritt, who is a writer, a thinker, a speaker extraordinaire. He's got his own podcast um, that is just so killer and everything. So Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Um, Jonathan, if you would just give, you know, our listeners a little bit of a, a, an about you so they know who, uh, who you are and what the conversation, how, how you have to, how you have the way of speaking about the things you're speaking about today. You know, I grew up the son of uh, a minister, a Southern Baptist minister, uh, a prominent religious leader in that tradition. And so I come to this conversation, honestly, as they say, down south, where I'm from. I'm from outside of Atlanta. Um, I was evangelical most of my life, um, raised, uh, as I said, Southern Baptist. I attended Liberty University. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary and a, a uh, United Methodist uh, seminary. Uh, after that, quite a quite a bit different, right? Quite a bit of it was a bit of a shift, but uh, went to Emory University for my THM, um, and now I live in in New York City. I served a local church for about four years before really pursuing writing full time, and and today that's that's what I do. I'm a religion writer. I focus on faith and culture. I'm a contributor to the Atlantic, a, a contributing editor to the Week. And uh, I write books. So my most recent book is called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. So that's me. Which is an incredible book. And we'll get we'll get into that book a little bit as we go. Jonathan, I one of the things one of the first kind of times I've, you know, explored your writing. And I think the first time I really kind of paid attention to, oh, you're the author, um, was actually an interview that you did with Eugene Peterson. I know it kind of got pretty big, uh, for certain reasons. I, I don't care about any of that, but it's, it's one of the first times I kind of engaged with a lot of your writing. And then I started kind of reading a lot of what you're doing. And something I think that we struggle with in the church is that we, often don't like to talk about the things that are happening inside the church in exposed ways. Uh And I think that we don't really like to actually say, hey, here's what's going on inside of our churches, good or bad, um, and actually kind of get them out there. And since this is what you do for a living, it's what you do for your career and what you're so good at, why do you think it's necessary that we have more people who are writing about the goods and the bads about the church in, in the public sphere? Mm. Well, I think that, I think that, you know, we're, we're, we're at a point in um, American history in particular, which is sort of the context in which I write, where, you know, issues of religion are at the fore of cultural conversations. And, and I say that, you know, people use words like cultural, particularly Christian people, and don't know what 
they mean when they say it. When I, when I talk about culture, I'm talking about, um, you know, issues and artifacts, um, that are, are, um, influencing us in several different spheres, um, business, education, um, arts and entertainment, science, church and theology, and then the social sector, you know, nonprofits, humanitarian work, um, the government, et cetera. And right, so right. Uh, when I look at, at, at the various sectors of culture, you think about it. If you look at like politics and the social sector, religion was supposed to have died off. I mean, I remember reading stories about the end of the religious right in the late 90s. Heck, I wrote some of those articles in the early 2000s. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's not died off. It's still here and it's a powerful force um, that contributed to the election of our current president. Uh, when you look right. at science, uh, faith and science debates are still um, ongoing. If you think about arts and entertainment, I mean, faith films uh, have become a huge part of, um, right. of our culture. I went last night to see A Christmas Carol, and uh, which is on Broadway now. It's come over from the Vic Theater in London for this this uh, this Christmas season, and I was there with a New York Times reporter. And afterwards, I said, what did you think? And he said, that's quite Christian, isn't it? And so uh, there is a, there's an openness. I saw, I remember Amazing Grace on Broadway. Uh, I saw uh, an off-Broadway show called Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which was about uh, a kind of fundamentalist Catholic view of society and a Christian college. So, I mean, <clears throat> these conversations, in fact, I remember last week, a few weeks ago, I saw Only Human, which was about uh, which was God was played by Gary Busey. I mean, um, so huh. you take any of the sectors uh, that we're looking at now, the major sectors of kind of cultural influence, and religion is on the forefront of that. How do we make sense of that? Yeah. How do we understand whether religion is playing a positive role or a, a negative role? How do we how do we understand how re- religion can be? Um, lived out without being uh, misused or abused. Well, you need translators. You need people who stand in the gap between those two worlds, who understand them both, who live in them both, who respect them both, and who can help us to see uh, how these things are are playing together in this moment so that we can find ourselves in the midst of it. And, And that's sort of how I see my role as being one of those translators who's sympathetic to both of those. I love God and I also love this world and living in New York City, you know, you can't you can't help but, but love this world. And I would say right. by the way living in New York City you won't survive uh and you certainly won't flourish unless you learn to love God and love people. So so for me right. that's yeah. sort of how I see my role and I think in this moment it's an indispensable role. In in so many ways what it sounds like is saying that, you know, writing about the church as it relates to culture and all those different spheres is helping us navigate the way in which both the church is supposed to interact with the culture while also showing how the church is not supposed to interact with culture or in the ways that we've negatively interacted with culture is probably a better way to put it. I think that you, you have to have both critique and affirmation. Now, 
What I don't yeah. believe is kind of this um, good people on both sides uh, narrative, right? Which says, which says, uh, well, you you have to have at least a fifty fifty split. Although some people would say uh, you have to be more positive because it's the church and we have to love the church and they would use unity and these yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, historically, uh, critique has played a prominent role in the formation of the church universal and the church local. And uh, I think that that, that that still is true. But I would say for, for writers, it tend, you tend to have um, uh, a greater draw and, and giftedness toward one or the other. I tend to be drawn toward critique. Um, a lot of other people uh, are, are, are drawn toward the kind of positive side, the encouragement of good behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think one is better than the other. In fact, you know, it's like arm day and leg day at the gym. You know, um, I would say those who are more pastoral by nature and in their own vocational gifting are drawn toward the encouragement of the church. Those who are more prophetic right. by nature and in their gifting are more drawn to the critique. And we need both. You know, you, if all you have is critique, you'll become a cynic. Um, and if all you have right. is encouragement, you'll become naive. And so we need both. And, and I, I'm quite comfortable with, with serving um, in that role, but being a little more weighted toward the side of critique. I just have eyes that say, this doesn't seem right. And, and, and then I think God's given me a certain level of courage to say, I'm going to dive into that and ask the question that others are afraid to ask. Right, right. Which is which is scary. I mean, you know, from from my own world, being someone who teaches theology and especially teaches theology to primarily students who have grown up very embedded within kind of Christian culture. Anytime that you begin to stretch or move or say, maybe there's a better way to think about it. Maybe there, maybe this way has been inefficient in the past or even problematic down to immoral. Um, the first response typically is don't tell me anything, right? Like don't change my perspective. Don't challenge what I think. Can't you just believe what you believe and I'll just believe what I believe and everything will be, be okay. And I like what you're saying there is the fact that we have this kind of tension that's happening between, and there's been a lot of different ways that people have tried to put it, whether it's between the creatives and the, I think the traditionalists is one, one way that's been put, um, you know, sometimes we use bad political language to try and give that dichotomy, but without any kind of prophetic critique, how can we expect the church to, to grow or even almost self uh, manage, right, or self-critique in the ways that we might have seen recently with, um, I believe it was the Southern Baptist Convention or the Southern Baptist churches that we saw a expose come out about in Texas about a bunch of ministers who um, mm -hmm. had mm -hmm. sexual harassment cases against them. Um, how is that ever going to be fixed or changed or even encouraged to be better if we don't actually right. talk about the ways in yeah, which we're failing. I, I, I think that you are, you're right, that, that um, the first step in spiritual formation is always naming reality. 
And I think that's true. Look, any, any, any Bible yeah. reading, Bible believing, quote unquote, evangelical can tell you that. I mean, think about the way that we present the gospel. Um, they would say, first, you have to realize you're a sinner. Right. In other words, or they'll say you have to tell the bad news before yeah, the good yeah. news, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, have to, you have to sell the problem in order to sell the solution, <laughs> yeah. to use business language. But somehow... When, when that same approach yeah. is, pl- uh, is applied, not just to individuals for the sake of conversion, but to an institution for the sake of its own positive formation, people get a little bit rankled. Um, you know, I think about the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which I, 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 I preached a sermon on at my church here recently. And, you know, everybody reads this as a story of pride and humility, which it's not. Um, I think it's primarily a story about um, a person who had the courage to tell the truth to himself about himself, and that that is the start of of of, of spiritual yeah. formation. And I think that is the same for the church. I would say, do you do you want the church to be what God has created the church to be? And if you say yes, then I think the next step is then you've got to find. Uh, a level of courage to tell the truth about what is you until you tell the truth about what yeah. is mm-hmm. you can't dream about what ought to be and uh you know i i think i'm probably situated a yeah. little more at the is naming uh, portion of that process but there are those who are also situated at the ought dreaming uh of that process and i'm grateful for them as well right Yeah, and and really both are so necessary. I mean, I know I'm I'm probably with you a little bit where I'm probably more inclined towards the calling out and not calling out in a negative sense of like I just want to destroy this, but calling out and saying I, I know that we can be better. Um, but that causes a lot of tension. And so, you know, as someone who's been doing this for a long time, I'm sure that you've probably gotten quite a few emails of mm-hmm. you're a heretic and maybe even some go aways. Um, and, and those are unfortunate. You know, there's been some writing that I've done that, you know, I just get called a heretic immediately, which with basic notions, with things that, you know, actually calling out heresy that were proclaimed within the first, uh, within the kind of third and fourth century going, Oh, they, we got to kind of move away from these heretical thoughts. Then I get called a heretic for mm-hmm. saying, uh, an ancient heresy is wrong. Right. Um, how do we best do it? Like from your kind of vantage point of being someone who's been doing this for a long time, maybe give us, um, some practical ways, both for those who are the ones who tend to call out how to call out and healthy and good ways. And then those who tends to be the aughts or the dreamers, how they can receive that in good and helpful ways as best as you've seen it. The big thing for me, um, has always been, um, staying in community with individuals who disagree with you. Um, you know, these days it's so easy to become insulated in an echo chamber where you, you, you lack yeah. perspective. Uh, you lack perspective about whether you're right. You, ra- you lack perspective about whether you're writing out of anger 
um, and 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 whether what you're writing is really reactive and not reflective yeah. or redemptive. Um, I think that there are there are a lot of ways to guard against that. For me, uh, I would say it's twofold. One, uh, I, I I start with the the understanding that everything I write is a snapshot into my thinking in that moment. What a lot of people will do is is they will say, "Well, I don't want to write about this because I'm yeah. not sure." Mm-hmm. And the, you know, because these there the issues that we're facing are so multifaceted and nuanced. You know, you never know. Well, I could write this and say this, but will I regret it in a year? And then you don't say anything. Um, <clears throat> writing is not your your universal final right. word uh, on the issue for all time. Of course, some people, I suppose, write that way because they write with they sort of stamp their writing with the yeah. of the Lord. And that's a, that's a hard way to write. Uh, that's not how I write. And there are things <laughs> right, that if I right. wrote it right now, I wouldn't write it that way. In fact, there are things in my last book that I think, oh, I would probably tweak the way I said that. And 10 years from now, probably it'll be even more. Maybe there are whole chapters I, I, yeah. I, would, I would rewrite. Um, that's okay. You're getting a snapshot of a person with a particular experience, a particular education, a particular context of a particular age, uh, writing from his own experience. And so that's okay. Uh, connected to that is the understanding that those of us who write, that, um, that oftentimes, uh, oftentimes our, our, our job is not to provide the right answers, but to raise the right questions. And I, I may get yeah. the answer wrong. But it was a good question. Ten years from now, I will believe that the questions I yeah. raised in my book were good yeah. questions. That that they were questions worth wrestling with. And so I did my job and I did my job well if yeah. I raised those questions right. and I and I found the courage to wrestle with them, whether or not my answer was correct. And if I did it in such a way that created a kind of capaciousness for others to enter into that conversation themselves and to ask that question themselves and come to their own conclusion. That's what I, what I hope to do. Once you do that, it will free you to begin writing uh, more frequently, more honestly, et cetera. But then, okay, once you start writing, what about not just whether you write, but the way you write? Uh, the way you write is also critical. And so what I do is, as I say, you have to always stay open. Uh, critiquers must be critiqued. Now, what I, what I find with critiquers is they love to talk right. yep. and they, they don't love to listen. They, they, they love to dish it out, but they can't take it. Um, and, you know, with the democratization <laughs> yeah. of media in particular, that's just a, an impossibility. You don't get to be Ernest Hemingway. You don't get to go write in a log cabin and put your yeah. work out and say, okay, now everybody's job is to read it and, and, sh- and shut up and take it. You have to be able to listen to what people are saying in response to it. But I think you have to move yeah. upstream of that. I think you have to get critique before you publish these. And so I have people in my life. My dad is one of those people in particular. Yeah. He's, you know, he's a conservative mm-hmm. Republican, Southern Baptist, evangelical megachurch pastor who is, you know, um, 30 years my senior. And 
he's he's married with children and he's seen a lot and he's lived a lot and he has a totally different yeah. perspective than I do. And so I'm able to send him something and say, hey, I'm about to send this to my editor at the Washington Post. What do you think? And he'll come back and say, I just don't think you need to say that. I don't think this is helpful. I think this is wrong. Yeah. What about this? What if you said it that way? Um, now, that doesn't mean that he agrees maybe with my core thesis, but he's willing to help me think through it. By the way, similarly, I edit his sermons and provide feedback on his sermon. And right. Now, he doesn't always take my advice, but we're able to kind huh. of have this yeah. ongoing yeah. dialogue where we've given each other permission to speak honestly into each other's life as we carry out our vocation. Most people do not do that. Uh, who, who kind of do what I do. And I think that that is, I think that's a, um, a critical misstep. Yeah. What, what I really like about that, whether it's writing or speaking or even just kind of going out into the public square and proclaiming something, uh, I think I, I really just de- decompressed for my own sake, two things, right? Like the first thing is it sounds very reminiscent of, Two theologians who I particularly kind of engage with a bit, someone like Paul Tillich and George Lindbeck, who both have this vision of theology and community that, like like you said, says that it's f- like when we talk theology or when we talk about critiquing, it's for a community. And with the age that we're in today, we have kind of moved to the space where because our community is without bounds due to social media and podcasts and blogs and so on and so forth, that our critiques become almost universal in an unhelpful way. That in some ways we are needing to be more critiquing of our own communities, like you said, to where we need to stay in our communities even if we disagree, because that's the community by which we actually can speak. Um, and then of course, along with that means that if we're going to do that in our communities, like you said, we have to learn to listen first to our communities and also be engaging with that in a kind of push and a give and take, right? A push and pull of saying, okay, well, here's some thoughts, here's some ideas. And maybe I have in my own autobiographical way, taken it to an extent that is, too far or unhelpful, or maybe I've, I'm not speaking a language that my community can yet listen to or understand or hear. Um, I love both those things, I think, because it actually does speak to the heart of what theology really is supposed to be about. And this faith-seeking understanding reality of saying, how do we actually progress in our faith inside of our communities mm-hmm. in helpful ways, both by the critiquing and by the encouraging? Um, and I think that's good. Uh, I love that. I love that feedback on here's how maybe critiquers need to do it. So how do we maybe take that second step then? Those who are encouragers, uh, those who are the ones that kind of have the vision um, moving forward, what's a good way or some helpful thoughts that you've thought about in terms of helping you know, them receive I, I that think, critique or has you've uh, seen the, the, good ways that people have received that critique? The solution is the same to some degree on both sides, which is Remaining in community, you know, community is such a driver for all of this, but remaining in real community, face-to-face, real life, life life-on-life community with people who are unlike you. Uh, Part of the problem with the encouragers are, you know, they spend three nights a week in church and, you know, they listen to Christian music and 
they watch Christian movies and they go to Christian schools and they hang out with Christian people. And they don't spend time with people who've been brutally wounded by the church. Uh, they don't they don't watch the other news network. They don't they're not hearing the frustration and the stories of pain and then trying to with open minds yeah. and open hearts and open hands to to ask, are these legitimate? And if they are legitimate complaints, legitimate uh, stories of pain, what does that what does that matter? How does that change what we do or how we do or if we should do something? Uh, most people don't. And, and isolated in communities like that, well, um, I can understand why you would say, you know what, my life is a lot happier when I don't have to confront that stuff. I get that. And so we, you know, it becomes the path of least yeah. resistance where you yeah. think, you know what, if everybody was just happy about the church and we never said anything uh, uh, critical about the church, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be fine because I don't have a traumatic experience. I don't have any pain there. So no big deal. Like I just, you know, live and let live. Um, I think that that community, true diverse community changes that because, uh, another person's pain becomes your problem. You are your brother's keeper, uh, in that sense. And so we, uh, other people who have experiences, um, that, that make, critique necessary in in some sense like you're saying we we mistake if i can put it this way we mistake no resistance with peace we think that like not having any resistance not having anyone that speaks out about anything or not having to engage with someone who thinks differently as what true peace is rather than recognizing that peace actually Mm -hmm. comes amidst and through working with people who are different than us, which, which, you know, hearkens me so much to, to Jesus and John 14 about this idea of mm-hmm. a peace mm-hmm. that's beyond understanding. We so very often want to manufacture our own, our own peace, which in this mm-hmm. kind of dialogue and discussion is well, I can manufacture peace by never having to engage with the other someone different, someone who thinks different, someone, um, who disagrees with me. I, you know, you know, I've, I've heard, um, unfortunately a new wave of pastors and thinkers and even people in the church that would say things along the lines of, mm-hmm. Hey, cool. If you don't agree with what's happening here, there's a church down the road for you. And I think that language has begun to start to scare me as the church because it it harkens back to what you said. What we're trying to create is echo chambers rather than healthy communities. You know, I think part of the problem, and of course the left and the right do it in their own ways, if I can generalize. You know, you talked about being called a heretic, which is uh, one of the, the favorite names that people call me. Um, it doesn't bother me because most Christians can't define heresy. So <laughs> we should we should start a club, <laughs> right? right? Um, heresy for most people is uh, just is 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 a junk drawer where you put anyone yeah. who disagrees with you on something you consider to be quote very important, right? So. What are your views on hell? Well, if you disagree with me, you're a heretic. What are your views on marriage? Yeah. Well, if you disagree with me, you're a heretic. Um, I'm I'm very creedal 
uh, the older I've gotten, I've gotten very creedal. And, uh, you know, we say the, the Apostles Creed in my church. And that sort of deviation from that falls into that category for me. Um, I don't yeah. get mad about it. If you're a heretic, that's your business. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'll sleep like a baby tonight. Doesn't bother me. Like you have to, you, the good news about being a Christian is, is that you have to give an account for you. I don't. So uh, right. it's not going to, to, to bother me one way or the other, but that's how I use that word. So, and I, I write about that actually in learning to speak God from scratch, that, that the creeds create those kinds of bumpers. But the right, yeah. the right will use that word as, um, you know, a billy club to beat you. The left, yeah. they will never call you a heretic because they don't really like that word. They'll call you a hater. So they'll look for traditional mm, views and yeah. they'll say, you hate, oh yeah, you hate, you don't agree with me on immigration. Right. You're a xenophobe. You're a hater of minorities. You don't agree with me on, um, you know, whether women are qualified for the pastorate. You're a misogynist. You hate women. Uh, you don't agree with yeah. me on, you're, you're homophobic. You hate gay people. And uh, frankly, uh, that's not always and oftentimes not true in, in my experience, uh, that there are people yeah. who do not hate women or gay people or immigrants, but they read the Bible in a particular way. They want to please God. I believe their views may be wrongheaded. I believe they may be oppressive, but they are driven by a, a, a desire to be good or godly and not by some sort of um, raging hatred toward another person. But, but, you know, the left and the right will do the same thing. They use, they use these kinds of huge, big, explosive words to, um, as a silencing tactic. Because if you're, if all you are is a hater, well, you have nothing to say to me about anything. All you're, you know, I can just yeah. dismiss you. If you're a heretic, well, now you're unsafe. You're not worth being uh, listened to. And so I really, I tend to uh, um, eschew that kind of anti-intellectual labeling that stymies uh, dialogue. And I think that that's our go-to. It's, it's lazy. It's unkind. And, uh, and, and sadly it's becoming, um, unbelievably prevalent. Yeah. It's, it's a way of being able to categorize someone immediately so that way you can actually distance yourself from not only what they think, but also just them as people, right? right? Like I don't have to be near you because you have eschewed this, this, uh, yeah, heretical idea, at least as I see it as heretical, uh, one, one, you know, evangelical, like really evangelical theologian who I really appreciated in this discussion of heresy um, is the the late Norman Geisler, who in his discussion on heresy, he basically like said, you know, heresy is such a small and very short list. Um, and he took it creedal as well, you know, whether it's using the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed and recognizing how simple and small those creeds were as the absolute kind of fundamental or creed by which uh -huh. everything uh -huh. else is kind of judged, which is really hard to judge something against a, a rule book yeah, that is right. maybe That's a quarter right. of a page. Because it's you, you can't go ask a bunch of questions because you get really basic, simple answers. Um, 
at least in terms of asking questions on is this is this a heresy or is this not unless you hit one of the major categories you're not mm-hmm. you're not really going to be finding that problematic um you might need to theologically discuss it and delve into it further but it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean you get to label it immediately as as heretical i like that a lot and i think your your new book speaks to this somewhat in the fact that what we need is a new language or a new means by which that we can actually engage with the discussion about god in order to in some ways to use my own language for it kickstart mm-hmm. our conversations again um, because our old, the, the language that we've talked about, and you said it really well in your book, the fact that this reality uh-huh. is that when languages don't change, they die. And so our way of talking about God, I think today, especially as it relates to this kind of like critiquing or encouraging heresy calling, you know, or hate calling is that our language has become so divided that our language has kind of encamped itself and when it does that, it's kind of heading towards death in so many ways. So maybe give our listeners some kind of thought process on what do you mean when you say we need new language to help this conversation? Well, we need new ways to think about language also, that old language. Um, so, you know, when I say language will language either changes or dies, this is sort of an indisputable um, element of all speech act, uh, language, you know, the, the, yeah. whether it's, you know, English, French, um, or I would say the language of faith that, um, that if you look at these languages over time, they're evolving as we evolve, they're changing. I mean, go back and try to read, um, Shakespearean English and you you know, you're going to struggle because words have changed meaning Usage, usage, prevalence, uh, and prominence, uh, and so you 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 have to uh, you have to realize that that is a that is what keeps language alive is that it, it yeah. changes with us, and so I think there are a lot of people who don't recognize that, and so they they lack imagination in the way that they talk about God and faith and themselves and life. And uh, we need to recover that sense of imagination, or as I would say, language transformation. Now, what that doesn't mean is that anything goes. Right. It doesn't mean right. that you can just say, well, this means anything I want it to mean. And I talk about that in the book. In fact, I use C.S. Lewis's, um, in his book, which is his, probably his most boring book, uh, <laughs> which is about um, language and speech. Uh, yeah. he, he talks about, he uses this metaphor of a tree, that there's kind of this trunk, this core idea, and that over time it continues to sprout new branches. And I use uh, the word sin and the way that, that sin is used. It's used one way in the earliest New Testament writings. It's used another way in temple Judaism. It's used another way in the New Testament. It, it sort of has takes on another um, uh, conception in the Reformation, and of course now we use it in all kinds of ways. We're, we we kind of right. pick and choose based on our purposes. You know, I mean, people who say, "Well, we can only talk about that word in in um, in its original meaning," whatever they they're referencing by that. 
It's like, well, what about yeah. when your pastor says, I have a sin problem, which means I need a savior? Problem solution language is essentially late 20th century language. Right. Yeah. It's not biblical language. You're not going to find sin problem in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean you can't extract that or that that's a wrong conception or that it's not true in some way. But we're always uh, uh, sort of reincarnating, if you will. And I mean that just in the sense that we're continuing to re-enflesh these concepts. And indeed, that is how the faith continues to live from generation to generation. And so what I hope to do in this book is to give people permission to begin to reimagine what some of these uh, phrases, these concepts, these ideas could mean for us in our day. Yeah. And, you know, as the problem that I see a lot with my own students is that, for instance, even um, just today, I'm having students turn in a, a a credo paper that says, give me your creed, your core list of beliefs. Now explain it to me, the rest of your paper. So many of them use language that they don't even understand, but they just know that they've been given to it by their parents or the church. And I'll ask questions like, well, what does that mean? And they'll say, well, you just, it just means it. Something as basic for, I think, a lot of Christian thought is to call the church the bride of Christ. And I'll say, what does it mean to say that the church is the bride of Christ? And so they'll quite literally look at me and say, well, I don't know. That's just what I'm told. Uh-huh. That That's what we are. And we've almost kind of used this language so much. I mean, I think it used to be, you know, everyone used to be like, oh, don't use Christianese. And they'd use this Christianese word as some kind of um, defining word to kind of lump it all together. Uh But in some sense, I think we all have language that we refuse to help change and shift to help people see exactly what you're saying, that base trunk of the metaphor. What exactly are we talking about? And what's the best language that we can use to get to that idea? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're right. So how does that then um, help us in that dialogue of the critiquers and the encouragers? Like what are some ways that you've seen language change in helpful ways and how can we be mindful of doing that ourselves? Um, I would say, um, uh, you know, one, one word that I use, um, um, that I use in the book. In fact, I have, um, uh, an entire, uh, chapter on it is, uh, is blessed that, that for me is a, or, or, you know, blessed or blessing, and I use that as an yeah. example, and I think that's always such a relevant example because people will see, you know, the way in which the word is now being used. It's being used, you know, Instagram has radically transformed this word because it's pairing this word with images that essentially boil down to privilege. You know, I got a, yeah. I got a Lexus for Christmas, hashtag blessed. My husband and I were celebrating <laughs> our anniversary in Punta Cana, hashtag blessed. And... Um, yeah, I had a healthy baby born. Hashtag blessed. Um, and so, what do you do with the person who's who had a stillbirth, who could never afford that Lexus, whose marriage crumbled in their hands um, long before they reached uh, that 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 length of relationship? 
does God not love them? Is God not blessing them? Does God, if that's how God blesses, if that's how God shows that, that, that we are blessed exclusively, what does that say for us? And so what ends ends up meaning is that blessing just becomes privilege. Um, and there, that's a problem. It it does not, it, it, it reduces the word blessing to something that is, um, so small and so uh, exclusive um, that it, it has a psychological effect, and I would say spiritual effect, on people who, f- who find themselves uh, outside of those experiences. And so as I say in, in uh, the book, we have to be careful the way that we use uh, that word. We have to begin using that yeah. word in a, in a much broader sense, but we have we've allowed that word to be reimagined, as all words uh, eventually are reimagined. Um, we've allowed that word to be reimagined in ways that are not helpful and actually misrepresent God. Um, yeah. The way that God is, yeah. the way that God acts, um, and so there are words like that. That, uh, that uh, are in this book. I think another one is the word confession. You know, we're living in the age of authenticity and the age of vulnerability. Thank you, Brene Brown. <laughs> there's a lot of positives that come from that. But yeah. oftentimes what we call confession, which is something that maybe for some traditions is delivered to a priest in a box and it's private, or it's something that's told, uh, you know, over a cup of coffee to a Christian friend or your pastor has now become license to spew uh, e- every jot and tittle of your personal life yeah. on the internet to smear people who who uh, who you have a beef with to to right. speak ill of your estranged spouse to talk about struggles that other people have not earned the right to enter into. Right. And so that word confession has moved from being something holy and sacred to being something that's akin to kind of voyeurism. And we have to to reimagine that word in a way that 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 shapes us to be more like Jesus. Yeah. And uh, so so there are words like that that I discuss in this book that I hope will be helpful to people. Yeah, and I think, you know, to to tie into that blessing thing, I always encourage my students to think about this reality of when you say, when you tie blessing to material possessions, what we're inevitably saying to those who don't have material possessions, but those who have given their life over to the reality of serving God, that they actually aren't blessed and they have not chosen the right way, Mm -hmm. but you might have because of your privilege or where you are. And I think when we start thinking about the other in that way, it helps us to reimagine that language a bit to go, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't use that word there when I just happen to get a parking spot right up at the front of the mall right before Christmas. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm blessed, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe that's not going to either be helpful to even yourself, but especially to the other person who's parking at the back of the parking lot while they're serving food to somebody who is homeless, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Correct. 
I love it. I, I know that you have uh, some time constraints and you, you're going to have to get going. So I wanted to let everyone know, go, uh, if you want to hear more from Jonathan and everything he's doing, go buy his book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. Go uh, listen to his podcast that he's had on Seekers and Speakers, which is a really great podcast talking about changing language and thinking about the way that we talk about things. Jonathan, is there any other way that people can connect with you, uh, get to know you or uh, follow along with what you're doing? Well, I love, you know, these days I'm really loving Instagram because it's, it seems to me to be so less toxic than Twitter, although I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, so I, I try to be a little more personal there and to really connect with people. So I love Instagram. And of course, people can follow me on any any of my social media. And they can also go to, um, to jonathanmerritt.com. I have a newsletter where I send out what I call the Faith and Culture Five which is the top five religion stories of the week that people need to know about. So I always suggest people sign up for that because it's so hard these days to stay in touch with all that's going on. It's like, let me do the work for you. I'll sort through all the headlines all week long. I'll pick the top five stories. I'll send them to you. You can scan them, click on one if you want to read it. If not, you kind of get the gist of things and you'll stay up on what's happening at the intersection of faith and culture in America. As someone who is trying to stay on top of that all the time, especially for my profession, I I need your uh, newsletter because it's so hard to do it. Right, <laughs> it's right. so hard to keep up with it. Oh. Um, hey, thank you again so much for for being with us and helping our listeners kind of learn to navigate these topics that we've discussed today. Really appreciate you coming on. It's my pleasure.